Hello, it's April the 21st, and welcome to Forwards, Backwards, and Upside Down. He knows old stuff. She knows new stuff. All right, today we're going back to the Romans uh, for our What's Happened Today. This is one of Nathan's definitely favorite historical time periods. So, Nathan, tell us what happens today in far history. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes this is the point of history where we get a little myth thrown in and you get to really just enjoy it. Um, 753 BCE, we think maybe on the 21st of April, Romulus uh, founded the city of Rome, which will be the heart of, uh, you know, one of the greatest empires in his human history. Now, of course, um, you know, greatness is all in the eye of the beholder, right? For most people under the yoke of the Roman Empire... It wasn't exactly great. Um, but, you know, for me, it was where I first really fell in love with history. I've really always loved uh, Rome. And, of course, I mean, Rome, you know, has a, you know ever far-reaching place in, in history today. Um, you know, the adoption of Christianity by the Roman Empire is absolutely, um, you know, one of the key moments in Western history. I, you, know, you know, more than a billion Catholics worldwide today. Um... And so it's interesting, you know, thinking about, you know, the founding of that empire all those years ago, right? It did first start off as a republic, and while it certainly wasn't the same um, level of democratic state we have today in our country, you know, one of the histories people, or one of those what-ifs people like to play with about the United States is, you know, what if the United States follows the trajectory of the Roman Empire, that over time, you know, we increasingly remove power from the Senate and from elected officials, and continuously concentrate power um, into, you know, our theoretical emperor. Uh, which, you know, of course, is interesting, right recently in the news, um, Congress, for the first time in a very long time, attempted to rein in the war powers of the president, and the president vetoed that resolution, only his second veto uh, of his presidency so far. Um, so it's interesting, you know, what lessons can we learn from Rome, uh, given today's world? What made Rome as a city different than other civilizations before it? Hmm, okay, interesting question. Yeah, so the, I mean, as a city itself, you have, um, you know, some notable aspects. You've got the the seven major families, the patricians, right? So the development of the patrician and the plebeian class. But still this idea that the plebeians deserve to have some sort of say via the Senate, um, you know, which was, by modern standards, horribly, horrendously corrupt. But, you know, <laughs> compared to a lot of other places in the world that were basically just straight-up dictatorships at the time, um, you know, the Romans, um, I think in 450-something, maybe 453 BCE, kick out um, their king. And basically from that point on, pledged to never again have a king. Such that even when the Roman emperors finally take over, they technically never declare themselves king or emperor. It's always that they just hold a couple of these powerful positions and therefore have basically supreme authority. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at like the way the Roman city is, um, it certainly is quite interesting. I mean, they do 
they have, you know, engineering was probably their greatest skill and feat. You know, they have a lot of pretty impressive engineering um, remnants that, you know, of course, you can still see in the world today. Um, but as an empire, I mean, it was, I think it was their ability to, to adapt and to um, effectively rule. And I mean, eventually people realized it was better to be in the Roman Empire than not. And so that was definitely a powerful force behind uh, the spread of Rome from city to empire. Yeah, that reminds me of the, if I get this wrong, I, I hope you don't divorce me. The Churchill quote <laughs> of democracy is the best system, of, but better than all of them out. I'm totally... It, yeah, the worst. <laughs> yeah, it's, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Right, the yeah, Church, Twitter right. has that same feeling where it's... It, there's there's a sense of like none of these are ideal systems, but when you look around, like it's better than your alternatives, and um, hopefully the 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 possible slide towards centralization of power in the executive that some people are slightly commenting on now, like hopefully we can look out and see that that the the more balance of powers that are prescribed in the constitution and part of thriving liberal democracies um, is better than the alternatives. Um, it may not seem like at every moment, and there may be benefits to other systems for sure, but in the long run. Well, yeah, it's interesting. The Romans have this classical trope for democracy, right? You know, suspend, suspend the Senate when the enemies are at the gates. Right, which is, still, I mean, still technically some of what's in the American system, right? You know, a declaration of war by the Congress dramatically increases the power of the executive. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like in some way, what's interesting to me, right, is as the rise of the strongman has happened these past couple of years, is, is it that, you know, there's not necessarily a, a in some cases there might be, but a, a, not maybe a literal, but maybe a more metaphorical enemy at the gates and in some ways, certain parts of, you know, electorates within certain countries have decided that, you know, they want to they want to return to a stronger, you know, quicker kind of solution, you know, short term fix strongman, mm -hmm. which is sort of interesting, certainly. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I think for me, one of the most important moments uh, of the Roman Empire is Constantine's adoption of Christianity, which has really had absolutely widespread impacts on today's world. I think, you know, Christianity would not in any way, shape, or form be what it is today without um, its adoption by the Roman Empire, which, of course, um, brings us to the fact that today is Easter, which, um, unfortunately, everywhere in the world is not something people are all celebrating. So, Michelle, what else has happened today? So um, today is Easter, um, and unfortunately, it's been a devastating day in the country of Sri Lanka, where over 200 people um, were killed in several explosions all on Easter. It seems, I mean, it's early days, it happened just today, but it seems like it's a coordinated act of approximately eight bombs. Um, there were a couple different areas that they were targeting. First are um, churches that were holding Easter services. So as the church are packed for Easter. I mean, as I was running through DC today, you see far more people sort of dressed up and heading towards various churches, the bells everywhere. I mean, this is the whole one of the holiest days in the Christian calendar. 
a lot more. I mean, I would say twice to three times the number of people who are usually in church are going to be in those um, in those places of worship today. So the bombs seem to have been targeting both churches as well as high-end hotels, which are going to have a um, large number of tourists um, there. Now, this is it, Sri Lanka is an interesting country. It's one that hasn't been in the news recently. It can't, uh, the end of its devastating civil war was in 2009. So it's had 10 years of relative peace after a really long time of its own. So the Tamil Tigers, which are sort of the opposing force in the civil war, were very famous for suicide bombs. Um, so it's a country that's very familiar with the devastation of, of bombing of civilian populations. But this is different. Um, this is targeting a different portion of society. No one's claimed anything yet, so it's unclear who's behind this, um, what's sort of going on. Um, but this is this is pretty unfortunate, and it's also not the first time there have been bombings against Christian communities around this time of year. In 2017, two years ago, there were the Cairo bombings um, on Palm Sunday, which would have been one week earlier. Another huge festival, particularly for the Coptic Christian community in Egypt. And so it's this feeling of uh, in these days of worship that this is a target. This is where um, if if the goal is to really have that feeling of terror and horror, which is for many times the goal of sort of these random acts of violence for terrorist organizations, this, this is really a key opportunity to do it, but also fairly devastating for those populations. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, if you told me that there was, um, that there were Christians in Sri Lanka, I would have been surprised even to begin with. I, I was looking it up while you were talking, 7.4% of the population is Christian, right? So pretty small percentage. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, with no group taking responsibility for this, I have a hard time understanding why an attack like this has really been perpetrated, right? I mean, it has the Christian minority, in Sri Lanka been, you know, responsible for anything? I mean, I just, I just have a hard time understanding any reasoning behind this. Like, why, you know, the Tamil Tigers, have they, you know, could they possibly, I mean, I thought they were pretty much defunct. So, I, yeah, I, when this, when you told me about this, I really just had a hard time processing and understanding this event because it seems so out of the blue to me. Yeah, so what's interesting is that um, the the Civil War did have a slight religious component to it, very slight, and that's between Buddhists and Muslims. Um, and so, again, as you were saying, the Christian population is incredibly small in this area. Now, this is not the first terrorist attack to take place in a country that is majority a different religion than Christianity, targeting Christians by extremist groups um, in countries that you wouldn't really think about it. I think back to the Bali attacks um, carried out by a, an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. Um, and I think part of this, particularly because they were, again, and this is early days, we don't really know, so we're just hypothesizing, the targeting of uh, tourist groups. I'm curious if this has more to do with trying to get um, Western influencers involved. So I know there have been reports of um, Australians, Americans, I believe Canadians who have been killed in this in these attacks. And so if the goal is um, 
if the goal is to create a lot of panic, focusing on Western populations, this Sri Lanka may be a country where carrying out an eight bomb attack may be easier than in a country where it would be predominantly Western uh, casualties. However, it'd be much more difficult to carry out that attack. That's just an initial thought that this may have less to do with the internal workings of Sri Lanka itself. And may, this, is, this is not the first demonstration by terrorist organizations of saying these are countries that are easy to carry out attacks. It's cheap. It's low security risk. But you can target Western populations fairly easily. I think of the um, attacks in Tunisia against um, British tourists, these sorts of things. Um, I think it's, it's more about uh, making impact in a place where I think the fear still stands, particularly Sri Lanka is, is like up and coming in terms of tourism. So um, that that may be part of it. But again, um, I I really don't. I this is just my like gut reaction. I don't know if it has anything to do with the the, the elements of the civil war, but it may have been. Yeah, I mean, just to me, it seems like just another senseless act of violence right i mean you have from what i can tell yeah i mean they hit they hit tourist pop targets they hit um specifically catholic places of worship um and yeah I mean, it looks like you know the, the attacks seem to have happened mostly in more highly touristy areas the the largest part of christians that are native to the island is in the northern west part of the island but this was on sort of the southwest and southeast coasts so, yeah, I think maybe your point about this is simply, you know, just an easier target for groups who want to attack Christians and attack Westerners. But, um... We'll find out in the coming days, but I think what, to me, what's interesting is it is if this will cut, if this will get any coverage, like what's happening next, like um, I'm just moving forward i think it's it's important to shed light on the fact that this is this is over 200 people have lost their lives in this um and hopefully like i i know there's the Mueller report and all this other stuff and i think sometimes spending some time um on it is is important too yeah more to come 13 in custody um, religious extremists has been the, the word coming out from the defense minister, so. Yeah, perhaps, you know, as, as places of worship are becoming increasingly secure around the world, they'll have to, people who want to do things like this will have to look for, you know, countries that are otherwise sort of on the sideline. You know, I don't think Sri Lanka has, um you know, much reason for it to be a target other than that, perhaps, yeah, just an easy target, which is really an unfortunate thing for, uh, for it to have been marred on this day of holiness for so many people in the world. Yeah. And I, think I guess that's, that's kind of the point of this stuff, right? Exactly. I think that's part of the, 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 the mental side of it is it definitely shakes you in particular because it's, it's becoming part of a pattern after, after the Cairo bombings, um, and that and that gives a sense of unease that you know that's that's the game ultimately yeah i prefer the game where we all get along though i'm always more of a cooperative kind of game player than a <laughs> adversarial one i know you are so 
we're going to move on to the 400-page document, which I've literally seen people on benches in D.C. just going through page by page. I mean, the number of trees that have been killed in printing the 400-plus pages, uh, the Mueller report. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's finally here. And, you know, for so many people, the crowd... The crowd goes mild, was the, the general reaction I've heard from most folks. The crowd, the crowd goes mild. Those no, people who haven't bothered to read it, of course, have been making certain proclamations of exoneration or innocence, but the more you read it, the more it turns into one of those horror movies. Where just, I mean, so much, you know, I love, right, it's all, so many of it is, just, you know, shady, but not illegal. You know, yeah. messed up, but not illegal. You know, met with people, but not illegally. (laughs) I think it's it's just uh, what's interesting about it is I think a lot, a lot of it are stories that people have been telling that we've been hearing in the news, and this is sort of like the most official document coming out of anything that's that's like confirmed a lot of the suspicions and sort of how the White House is operating this administration. And there is clearly a sense of there are people who are checking the and balancing in a way that I, I, I've heard this debate that says like, oh, I wish they hadn't done that. So then a crime would have happened. And I'm still kind of glad that there are checks and balances. And I understand it makes it more difficult to, to convict and impeach and all these grand scale things. But there there's a sense of hope in that report that, like, even at a very minor scale, people are gut checking against the against the Constitution, against the rule of the law. Um, I don't know how you reacted, but that was sort of my gut reaction was, well, this could have been way worse. Uh, thank you, random humans. Yeah, it um. It has certainly been, you know, unveiling a lot of what it has proven to be true were things that I was sort of already pretty convinced of, right? You know, the the widespread and consistent attempts to influence in the uh, election by Russia, right, which are pretty alarming to me, um, you know, especially, you know, I'm doing the Cold War with my crew right now, and it what sort of stands out to me is how did how did no one in the Soviet Union ever think of this? I guess, like you know, the the power of social media and things weren't as pervasive, or you know, you couldn't. It was harder to take out a newspaper article or put up a bunch of flyers in the seventies. But like, I mean, just the the power that the uh, Russians were able to wield in this election was pretty startling. But I think that that power is is particular to our to our time. I I don't this idea. Yeah. You know, you've hybrid warfare, which is the I hate to say it, it's like the catch-all term to describe sort of non-direct military influence that Russia is having. Whether this is the little green men in Ukraine or the use of troll farms um, in the U.S. election manipulation, and I think that. Um, in order for the Soviet Union to have done anything similar to this back in the Cold War era, they would have had to have individuals in the United States 
imposing and bribing or whatever they had to do to get newspapers to side with them, etc. And I think the ability for Russia to do this on their own soil is what makes it particularly 21st century. And also, I definitely, think, definitely. So I recently saw this great um, piece and it's looking at news outlets and it puts it on this graph and this graph is like, you know, left wing and right wing. And the other one is like actually making news, like doing original reporting and then analyzing the reporting. So this is your, your, your four quadrants. And to me, it was less about like where things were placed, which was all over the place. <coughs> How many news sources there are today that are just everywhere on that scale, where I feel like back in the Cold War, the number of news outlets people had were so much smaller. And therefore, like much, I mean, you didn't have Infowars is literally like as far into the right hand corner as you can possibly go. And it's because it's not making, it's not doing original reporting and it's very right wing. And I just don't think that, I don't know, this, that's just my take on it, on why this Russia hybrid thing is particularly 21st century. Careful, love. I don't know if we have enough listeners to go to war with InfoWars just yet. <laughs> I'm just quoting what this analysis said. Mm. That's what they want you to think. Yeah, no, um, it'll be interesting to see what materializes over the next couple of days. And I've heard everything from, you know, what? No, no collusion, no obstruction to, you know, it's a roadmap for impeachment to, you know, we'll just have to vote him out to, you know, all clear, sunny days, so... I must admit I haven't given my any of my time to the 400 pages. I've read a few um, summaries from trusted news sources, but um, it'll be interesting to see what happens within the next couple of weeks. You know, I think if you look at what Bill Clinton did to get himself impeached in the House, I think it is not at all equivalent and that it is far lesser to, than what Donald Trump has done. And I can understand the both sides of the argument, though, right? Some people saying, right, impeaching him in the House is pointless because the Senate will never do it. And in some ways, you're sort of giving him a, a win once the Senate turns down the impeachment versus, you know, impeaching will be a more public process and it will bring more scrutiny to it. And so, you know, I see both sides of the argument um, between the Democrats. Um, I think Mueller testifying may shed a lot of light onto some things, you know, especially once he becomes a private citizen. Um, and so that could be interesting. Mm -hmm. But it is it is certainly not over yet. The Mueller saga continues just as it has for the last two years. Yes, I I very much, you know, people talk about Watergate and like remembering living through Watergate and I don't know maybe I've avoided the Mueller stuff so much that like I hope nobody ever has to ask me about like what was it like with the Mueller report uh, because all I have is this vision of like this guy as the wind bustles and like his papers leave him on this bench and I'm just sitting there like oh no like this poor guy isn't like running past him in a park uh, I don't know there's a sense of like we have to eat it up and 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 like i don't i 
I would imagine many people who read that 400 page report hyped it up more than what's actually in there. I don't know if there's, it doesn't seem like there's like any like shining light that changes everything. Um, but that's maybe my take on it. The thing that stands out to me is the 10 moments of possible obstruction of justice. And that basically what I've been told is if, if Mueller could have exonerated Trump from obstruction, he would have. And the fact that Mueller makes no claim on that, basically what it says is Mueller said, look, I'm not going to decide on this. This is something that the Congress should decide on. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, where I've seen the like roadmap for impeachment and like roadmap to obstruction okay. claims coming from. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I mean, the other massive uh, news happening this week, um, something that I was at first really relieved to hear was just an accident Certainly a tragic accident, but it is very. It was very good to hear that this was not an intentional attack. Um, was of course the fires in Notre Dame de Paris over uh, the beginning of this week. I felt the same way as you, where um, you know I'm like in this meeting and people are bringing it up and like your initial heart goes to like, did somebody do this to this? Because that, that, that is like, there's something about like the destruction of a national symbol that when we come back to our conversation about terrorism, like that's not only the fear part, but the, 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 that's like a whole nother level. And I'm very, I agree with you. I was very relieved to hear like, this is restoration. Also, it um, it is sparking a conversation about how a lot of reconstruction that is and restoration that is happening in Paris is actually similar flaws. And so they're doing, they're hopefully this will prevent this from happening in the future as they can kind of learn from the situation. So I've also heard that they're going to like fix the problem at some other sites um, across Europe and I'm sure around the world. So that's also it. Happy news out of the catastrophe that was the loss of the forest and the spire and the roof of um, the main main cathedral. Yeah, it's 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 spawned some other interesting news stories. The first, which I thought was interesting, was that there are no longer any trees in France tall enough to recreate the forest. Uh, recreate the wooden roof, which I thought was interesting on a number of different levels. Um, and, you know, it sort of raises the question, okay, then where are they going to get the wood from? You know, or is it going to be, uh, you know, European Eurozone wood, or are they going to go to some developing country and pilfer a bunch of wood? <laughs> which I sort of thought was an interesting take on it. And then the other take on it um, has been how it is intersected with the Yellow Vest protests, right? I mean, we saw this massive outpouring of support, especially from the wealthy elite of France, throwing literally hundreds of millions of euros um, into the restoration project. And I think a lot of the Yellow Vest protesters have sort of, you know, responded with that by saying, you know, like, I mean, you know, it's nice to see all you billionaires unite on something, how about the people of France? You know, sure, this is the symbol of France and this is important to us. And, you know, this is 
um, generally would have been pretty peaceful protests. The yellow vests have kicked up this weekend, actually lighting a bunch of cars on fire um, in Paris this week. First week, week they've lit cars on fire. Yeah, but this is a lot of cars. I think it's like 11 or 12 cars, and there's sort of an increasingly sense of, of anger. And, and violence from the yellow vesters and vandalism, not violence, but right. lots of kind of violence. So, I, I, I think there's a so there's approximately a billion euros that have now been pledged from again the wealthiest of the wealthy among France, those who have benefited from Macron's tax cuts, and I think there are kind of a couple different debates happening. One is I think <laughs> there was a great. Um, Twitter post that kind of went viral that was basically like, if if it's an issue people care about, they'll they'll give a billion. A billion is not hard for them. Like in seconds, they're all like, yes, we're doing this. Um, and yet, getting a billion dollars for starving children in Yemen or South Sudan or helping from floods in Mozambique, like that billion dollars is so hard to come by in such a long fight, and it's. You know, it's this um, monument of history and beauty versus humans. Um, and I think there's an interesting debate that's happening to say, like, what is the economic value to us as people, as a global people, because tourists all over the world more are likely to go to Notre Dame than they are um, the Eiffel Tower. Um, what how do we value that history and that beauty of architecture and it's you know really rousing up this debate about where we put our money what we value and i think people are really struggling with it because it, at all ends it seems like a billion dollars could go a long way for a lot of people whether it's the people yeah, cyclone rebuilding in east africa you know yeah a billion dollars to the opioid epidemic. I could think of a lot of causes that could use a billion bucks. Right. But also, like, history is invaluable. And so you have a, a monument that's nearly a thousand years old. I, I see how there's not a right answer to this from a strictly human standpoint. I mean, if we... If we can say that the destruction of heritage is a war crime with Timbuktu and Mali, then we decided that this is a level of of preservation that we as humanity have decided is really important. Um, and it, to me, it's curious how. I mean, I wish I wish people would give a million or billion dollars or euros to helping Mosul pick itself back up and the heritage that is there in parts of um, Iraq. But it's, I don't know, I, it's just, it's, I don't have an answer to it because I see why people are mad. And I, I get why people are mad because it was so quick and it's a billion euros. And, um, but at the same time, I think not investing in those things is why we lost all that heritage in Brazil during that fire at that museum. Oh, yeah, so sad. Preserving cultural and heritage. Yeah, I just, again, I can, you know, the yellow vests, I think, have, I can see their frustration. I can see it boiling over in the number of things they've lit on fire this weekend, which I think in the past we had seen the more radical elements of the yellow vest movement kind of reined in by the more moderate elements. And I think the growing frustration amongst the yellow vesters 
is going to mean more shit's going to get lit on fire in Paris. Yeah, and I think this is also, like, I think Macron's response is part of the problem. He immediately was like, we're going to put money towards this. Here's our fund. We're going to tax people to make this plan in five years, which five years for a restoration project of this magnitude is everyone is saying that's ridiculous. No way. He wants to finish it in his presidency, right? Isn't it? Doesn't he have, like, five-ish years left? (laughs) So Um, (laughs) he wants to unveil this. I, <laughs> right around the election campaign, I'm sure. Presidency seven years. Uh, that sounds maybe possible. Um, I, I think it's also we um, like we're going to pick ourselves up from this sort of sense, but forgets that there are also people calling to like help us pick themselves up from their normal lives. Um, so yeah, I also wish that like. <laughs> Maybe as you're giving a million euro, ten, a hundred million euros to one cause, that maybe you'll also pledge to give it to another cause. It just seems like there needs to be a balance here. And again, I think a country like France can can do that restoration on its own. And I, it does make me a little upset that other other projects are dying for funding and nobody's sending them funding, which have the same cultural significance in those countries themselves, whether it's Syria, Iraq, Mali. Brazil, etc. So it's, yeah, there's no right answer in this. And I think it's really starting no. to make people question how much we value culture and beauty, particularly Western culture and beauty, and how we value others differently. Yeah, I think if you look at who gave money, too, it was all the, the luxury luxury conglomerates that own a bunch of the Paris fashion houses and stuff were some of the first givers and a French oil billionaire gave a bunch of money and then what what I thought was interesting was one of the largest donations I think came from not an individual but from a company right so this is the the game company Ubisoft um, who has famously now come out that they've basically 3D rendered and mapped the whole cathedral itself for uh, use in one of their video games so that they've donated half a billion euros and also are now giving away copies of the game itself uh, for free for an entire week sort of this idea that you know if you can't visit it in person come visit it in the digital space of our game which is sort of interesting take on things this was interesting because i think you and i were talking about this earlier that video games are actually some of the best um like they do a phenomenal job at recreating sites all over the world in terms of game and like that that's really important to video games and they're kind of an ally in sort of this cultural preservation side of things which i had never ever heard of Um, yeah it was interesting they they sort of the video games waded into the argument of statues right so some person who was not super well educated came out and said that you know statues were all white a for white supremacy and then of course all the historians had to be like uh actually they were painted you genius um and which is exactly correct and and actually if you play one of the other games from this same company from ubisoft if you don't pay attention to the um the mythical things going on in the greek setting um you do see all the statues are painted which is sort of a nice touch to it um but uh, yeah, it's certainly it's certainly interesting looking at video games as sort of shepherds of the past in some ways, which is um, an interesting take on what many people think is a waste of time. 
<laughs> um, speaking of a great way to waste time, um, and, and definitely a way I do waste some good amount of time in my life, um, it's time to roll through Reddit. Um, this time I selected for us the TIL subreddit, which is, stands for Today I Learned, um, which, which is a fun subreddit. Usually it's sort of things people have discovered, um, and then it's, you know, with using the comment section, it's people either saying, oh, that's interesting too, or, or how didn't you know that, dummy? Um, but it's sort of uh, some interesting uh, little tidbits and facts, sort of a potpourri of facts. Um, uh, you know, one that stands out to me right away is the, one of the top ones. Um, today I learned 10% of Americans have never left the state they were born in and 40% have never left the country. Now, I would love to see is that data based on state, right? So what states do Americans never leave versus what states um, do Americans leave all the time? So that's pretty remarkable to me. 10% 10 10 of Americans have never left the state they were born in. That's what, you know, 30 million people, right? Give or take. Right. And I think what's this to me is it's not surprising numbers, but it's numbers that I think are frequently forgotten that in a, in a, in a country where it's, I mean, it's free borders. You don't even really realize you're moving from one state to the other. Um, I would guess other than sometimes it's noticeable. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Um, other than Hawaii and Alaska, um, I would guess that from any point in one state, what you think you could drive out of it in six, seven hours max. Like that's how long it would take to leave one state on the continental U S. Yeah. Yeah, probably less than that. I mean, a lot of states, there aren't that many states that are, you know, you could really be in the middle of. A lot of states are weird shapes, so you could escape pretty quickly. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, so it's sort of interesting, you know, I guess in some ways, I guess they have no reason to leave. Um, or they can't leave. I mean, this is also yeah, too. where there's not a lot of vacation time, safety blankets. Um, large percentage of the population doesn't have $1,000 if something did happen to them when they were traveling. Um, and I think this comes back to reaching out to people um, and and really sort of developing this networks, you know, is not, I, I, I know, I, I mean, I've lived in, what, six states maybe since I've been here. Um, and I forget that, like, that's not very common, or at least less common than I realize. Got it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, anything uh, tickle your interest? Um, I like that this English language used to have six more letters. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which yeah, you know, it's like a, a the O E combo like you have in French, the A E combo that you have in a lot of Nordic languages. Yeah, for for Ala. Um, yeah. There's also like all these other ones that I've never seen before one is like a backwards three called yog um i had no idea so learn something new every day yeah i wonder you know if those are more again i'm not much of a linguist but my guess would be those perhaps are more of the more old english or maybe um some of the influences from non-french sources and that the french lettering um, uh, coming with the introduction of more Frenchness into your England, um, perhaps had something to do with that. Do you see one that speaks to you? Otherwise, I found another great one. It's yeah, no, go for it. Okay. 
So sometimes giraffes use their own butt as a pillow. And so it like the whole neck sort of like makes a semicircle around. Um, and it's, it's so delightful <laughs> because I know I can't do that because obviously my body doesn't move like that. But if I had a flexible neck, it's like the solution to, um, I mean, obviously a giraffe doesn't fit on an airline seat, but. I don't know. It just looks so cozy and wonderful. Uh, here's an interesting one. You know, I, I'm, of course, very excited for um, the 26th, the Marvel Cinematic Universe's climactic final episode. Uh, Endgame is coming out, and I'll make sure I bring my own popcorn because um, today I learned movie theater popcorn is sold at a 1000 275% markup. You know, I, I always knew it was marked up. I always knew it was expensive. I'd heard the, like, movie theater popcorn is more expensive than filet mignon per pound. But to see the actual astronomical markup in percent is pretty impressive. That's a big markup. <laughs> it really is. 1,275%. <laughs> really cheap. Um, and then here's, here's maybe a nice PSA. Um, this was something I really loved doing as a kid. We would walk um, to the local lake shore and feed our leftover bread to the ducks. Um, but apparently in some places this has been causing diabetes amongst the ducks, which isn't great. Um, and so if you really want to feed ducks, um, you should feed them frozen peas as a more, oh. um, as a better balanced food item. And I, I think watching ducks eat little frozen peas could be pretty fun anyway. Um uh. They were they were also, I mean, obviously, uh, bread is very popular in the Netherlands. And one of the things they were giving these ovens that you could put your bread in and they could make electricity out of burning the stale bread. Um, because, yeah, the ducks get diabetes. As we know from our hamster, you can't just get small mammals, whatever you want. Yes, especially when they're not... Um... When they're not designed to eat it so well. Um, and then, uh, do you have another one to share, my love? Otherwise, I've got I one good know. last one. You go for the last one. So this, I mean, this um, this is uh, from a little while ago. I, I Sometimes when you visit Reddits you're not at for a while, it can help to um, sort it to top. And then you can look at the top links from the past month or the past week, whatever. This is one from the past month. Um, this is about an elderly man who was able to gain the trust of a Belgian bank by bringing its bank workers chocolate. Uh, one day he was even given access to the bank vault. Um, and at some point throughout all of that, he stole $28 million worth of diamonds and then vanished. Um, which brings up to me, there's sort of, um, I remember, I forget which comedian he's, who does this, but he's talking about, you know, once he becomes old, like once he's 80, he's just going to like speed and do cocaine and do whatever he wants and just sort of, um, you know, can can just embrace chaos as an octogenarian. Um, and, you know, we, we've talked about previously on the show, right, this, um, you know, the, the elderly in Japan having to go to jail to help s stretch out their pension fund because it's so poor. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, yeah, I mean, the plight of the elderly as the world um, becomes increasingly, you know, economically um, isolating to them. You know, will we see another elderly, elderly, the nicest crime wave, you know, of of crocheted gifts and chocolate turtles that eventually lead to diamond theft? 
um, you know, will that be the, the will this be the new crime wave of of the eighties? You know, will the will the baby boomers turn bad and start stealing everything they can because social security becomes defunct? Who knows? The world will have to wait and see. Uh, I'm I'm hoping my eighties aren't you know having to steal lettuce from the mole men to survive, but who knows? Who knows what awaits uh, our future fifty years from now? Thanks for the Debbie Downer, Nathan. Hey, you know, maybe stealing lettuce from the mole men will keep me in shape and keep me really fit and active into my 80s. Who knows? All right. We're <laughs> in the news. Um, yeah, I mean, speaking of people stealing things um, and the economics, um, I uh, where I usually get my numbers from, right, is, is one of my other favorite subreddits, the Data is Beautiful subreddit. Um, I saw a – it was about a five-minute um, – animated graph of the GDP per capita of the various world's countries over the last couple hundred years. And it was very interesting to watch countries come and go, right? Of course, and GDP per capita is sort of an interesting thing, right? So for example, you know, Australia was way up there for most of the time because not a lot of people, and guess what? Australia is full of gold, mm-hmm. right? So all the gold mining there is going to lead to a pretty high um, GDP. So the the world average, um, according to, um, I believe, the IMF 2018 uh, f- uh, survey, was that the world average is 16799 U.S. dollars. Um, the World Bank significantly disagrees with you, but that's okay. Yeah, what, the, 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 are you looking at the 2017 World Bank data? Mm-hmm. That says sixteen nine sixty one. So what do you mean disagrees with me? It says ten thousand seven hundred and twenty one. World average? GDP per capita in current US dollars. Oh. Well that's I don't a- know the, that's that is a, that is a sizable discrepancy. Well this I'm looking at the compilation of it on, on Wikipedia. And so Regardless of the average, let's we can table that for a moment. What stands out to me are some of the the winners, you know, the countries. So the more you think about, you know, everyone's going, oh, of course, America's in it. Well, you know, they are and they aren't. Right? The United States, absolutely, fabulously wealthy country, but there are a lot of Americans, right? And so it's um, what especially was interesting to watch in this video was to watch the oil boom, mm-hmm. right? So you know, for the, the top the top ten countries. Um, you know, especially after the or after and during the Second World War, America's there. You know, doing great. You still have the Aussies with all their gold, and then out of the blue comes the massive oil rush, and such that you know by today's top ten standards, you've got Qatar, um, Norway, the UAE, and Kuwait all in the top ten. Um, and Qatar at one hundred and thirty thousand four hundred and seventy-five dollars a person is crushing basically everyone else in the world. I think what's um, interesting about these, uh, particularly these small Middle Eastern countries with immense oil wealth is how they define per capita. Because for so many of these countries, they don't allow citizenship, particularly of... Um, interesting. So they're juicing the numbers a little. Yeah, so if you look... So the World Bank has a much more, I would say, um, nuanced way of looking at population that's not strictly citizenship. And in that case, it's actually 63,000 
uh, per person. So it almost halves when you start to take into consideration the portion of the population who, for the most part, aren't seeing this money. So I would say that 130000 would be much more accurate for GDP per capita of citizens of Qatar, but not necessarily the number of people who actually physically live in that country. And so that's where this stuff gets really interesting is that for so many um, of these different countries, it's like who benefits, how do they benefit, what's the inequality look like? Um, and there's definitely a discrepancy there between some of the oil boomers versus some of the other countries that you know, you see are just pretty consistently high up there who have good social benefits and um, and uh, safety nets and things like that. Yeah. So the one the one that kind of blew me away that was on the list and it, in especially in the historical thing, too, it was it was there for a while. It would sort of hang out in the top 10 pretty consistently was Ireland. If you had asked me if I thought Ireland would be in the top 10 GDP per capita countries, I would have said no way. And I wonder if that's just because, you know, we've got this American stigma of, you know, the Irish potato famine and the Irish are a bunch of just like sheep farmers hanging out in the middle of, you know, the Greenlands or whatever. But that number blew me away that Ireland is, um, at least per capita, a GDP powerhouse. Ireland is an incredibly interesting economy. It is now one of the tech hubs, which I think actually makes it we forget, like when we think about um, where a, a technology would headquarter themselves, we go London. London is where a lot of the financial systems are, but in terms of tech headquarters, a lot of them are in Dublin. And that really starts to stack your economy when I think post the famine, Ireland really is a knowledge-based economy. It has very high levels of education. Uh, so I agree with you that like people forget about that it's you know, they think about, you know, farmers in the middle of like Donegal or whatever. Um, and uh, there's there's really a lot of substantial money being made, um, particularly in Dublin, by sort of the tech startup culture. So how about love? What's uh, what's your number in the news? Are we going to stick with economics or are we changing gears? Um, we're going to change gears a little bit to corruption. Um, so this week, $130 million was found at al-Bashir's house. He is the former head of state of Sudan, who was ousted in a military coup the last few weeks. Um, what's sort of interesting about this is he had multiple different currencies sort of sitting. Um, it appears like he had hoarded it in his house. Um, he's now being investigated for money laundering. And um, I think if if you've studied Sudan and sort of the corruption and that's happening, this surprises, I think, people none that this was happening. Um, I think there's some interesting things about the whole, like, uh, sort of that uh, the protesters are really pushing for the military coup to do elections, and there's a lot going on there. But when it comes to Omar al-Bashir, um, he's wanted in the International Criminal Court for war crimes in Darfur, and sort of adding this sort of, well, he's got $100 million, $130 million just sitting at his home, is a reminder of people in power who are able to create a system where this, this is just happening, um, and that this is money coming out of government coffers into the elites 
and they're holding it in currencies that are actually valuable to them, euros and dollars. Um, and it adds up at the end of the day pretty substantially to 130 million. Um, and that I think for a lot of this sounds like a phenomenal number, but it I think it surprised no one. And that's the piece that I took away from it is that we forget um, how the, these systems are compounding. He's been in power for several decades now. And if you take a little bit every time, suddenly, suddenly you have a lot of money. Um, so, and it will be interesting to see whether, like, if they, if he'll actually ever end up in the ICC for war crimes or if uh, they'll do a money laundering charge. You know, I think similar to the Al Capone debate or um, Julian Assange debate right now, where it's like, is it about getting prosecuted or is it about getting prosecuted for the right crime? Um, and so sort of just an interesting little number in the news, 130 million found at the house of Omar al-Bashir. Yeah, I wonder if maybe that's why he didn't run, was that he thought maybe he'll get less jail time from Sudan than he would from other places in the world. Well, absolutely. I mean, his his buddies are the ones running the coup. Um, I, they've been very nice to have. I think the, the the coup leaders are balancing the protesters' demands, which are not ceasing, with how do we gently... I mean, this is a bit of a Mugabe situation, in my opinion, where, okay, we have to oust Mugabe, we're going to put in his second-in-command in power, and we're going to, like, let him nicely hang out for the rest of his life. Or a Yaya Jame situation in the Gambia. I think there's, this is becoming kind of a, a pattern of, you know, individuals who probably committed war crimes, who took millions of dollars from state coffers, um, kind of get old, people protest, and then we let them out gently. But they get to maintain their luxurious lives uh, so it will be interesting if that 130 million dollars goes back to sudanese coffers or ends up someplace else um and i mean this is not the only money he has so we'll see but he's not running because then he'll go to the icc and actually get convicted for war crimes and sudan i don't think is interested in convicting him of war crimes yeah yeah i think um It'll be interesting to see what what sort of courtroom or sort of sentencing he ends up under, right? You know, will he be able to run the government from his jail cell or from his house arrest, or will he end up in a Western system of justice? You know, should he end up in the ICC, right? Or should Sudan deal with its own, um, you know, and I think it's interesting, right, you bring up the connection between past coups that have really sort of only taken out the front man but left the organization in charge. I think you mentioned to me um, in discussing this, right, yeah, so this is sort of, this isn't changing, you know, the, the pyramid of oppression. This is just removing the pharaoh and replacing him with someone else, right? Yeah, and the protesters are calling for a change of the system, and that's why they're not relenting. And that's why this... Good on them a side piece it's like okay you can catch him on money laundering but like you're still the one checking him on money laundering you're still the ones who are in power um we're military based and we don't we don't trust you we had a military leader for several decades so sort of um inadvertently we've talked a lot about this episode about 
money and wealth and, you know, the wealth of certain elites. Um, and it's nice to see that, um, quietly, there are some very wealthy uh, people in the world who are making um, changes for the better. Um, LeBron James, one of only three athletes in the world to ever sign the $1 billion lifetime endorsement deal um, with Nike. I think he will be an absolutely fascinating figure to follow once his sports career is finished. Um, I think I, like many other people, think he may end up in the world of politics, which would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, as an Ohio native and someone who has a lot of love for his state, he could be a very interesting um, candidate in years to come. Um, and recently, um, he has been making good on his promise um, to return money that he has earned to his community. Um, in this case, it is through a system of schools. So this is the, one of the first of his schools. Um, it's entitled um, the I Promise School, opened in Akron in 2018. Serves 200 students, 40 students from third to fourth grade. Um, students that, and I quote, have been declared irredeemable because of either behavioral issues or social circumstances. That right away freaks me out. As a teacher, for someone to be declared irredeemable in the third or fourth grade, it's a little early. Yeah. It's a little early, all right? There's more, there's more to come. So the idea that that's happening is, is already disappointing to me. Um, and what has been impressive is the turnaround that's happened here. 90% of pupils have outpaced their fellow students in math and reading goals. Oh. Um, students' test scores are, in fact, excellent. And so I wonder, right, I mean, what exactly um, is going on here? So the I Promise schools, not to, not to tote LeBron's horn, <laughs> a bulk of their funding is from the state, but it does get $600,000 from LeBron James's foundation. Um, but what, I, what I'm curious about is how much of the name goes with this, right? How many students are thinking to themselves, I go to LeBron James's school. Oh, absolutely. I better work harder. I better study better. You know, and, and that to me, I think, is what perhaps is more impactful than the money he has given. And if you look at the, this article, right, you see kids doing his iconic chalk toss, doing his um, you know, that celebration and, you know, the I promise itself was something I think LeBron had mentioned. So I, I very much wonder, is it more that his name um, than it was actually his money that has had impact here? Well, I think what I've been impressed by LeBron James's school is that um, I think he has created sort of atmosphere that's like, the only way to be successful is not be a basketball player like me. It's work hard, pursue your dreams. And I think that narrative is really important for, for, for young kids to see that, that a basketball player, I think for a lot of people, you know, these star athletes, people want to be like them as an athlete. And of course, not everybody is built to be a basketball player. I'm certainly not. I'm only, you know, <laughs> more than a foot shorter than my father who played basketball. And I just think that um, I, I really value that because they, and I think that's something that I was nervous when I heard about these schools. I didn't want to just become like a basketball place. And I think he's done a really good job at creating role model. Um, and, and again, this, this pursuit of something larger that's more generic than just basketball. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's certainly um, it'll be interesting to see what he chooses his legacy to be after sports. And I think you know, there's this classic, iconic competition between him and Michael Jordan in the sport world. And I think in many ways he will be very hard-pressed to recreate the sports achievements of Michael Jordan. But after that life, I mean, Michael Jordan has sort of stayed in sports, you know. And I think Le- Le- perhaps LeBron James can do is is building a new future for himself and for, um, you know, potentially other athletes to follow, which is that of, you know, uh, of bringing real change to the world. Um, and he certainly is a powerful figure to do it. Um, again, it will be very interesting to see what he does when he finally hangs up his shoes and moves into the next phase of his life. Yeah, exciting to see. Um, you want to take us out with our funny fact finish, love? Funny fact finish. Um, so yesterday was 420, uh, an infant's day for marijuana users and has become sort of a national celebration so the fun funny fact finish is that many festivals that started um kind of in the 80s celebrating this day have grown so much uh in size they've gone from a couple thousands to hundreds of thousands of people that governments used to qualify them as protests and now they have to qualify them as festivals and provide uh police and logistical assistance one, because of the legalization of marijuana itself, particularly in Canada was the big example, but two, just the enormous number of people who are becoming involved. So I thought that was pretty cute personally that um, you now have not 420 protests, but 420 festivals that are supported by local governments. Um, so I thought that was wonderful and funny personally. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see you know, how marijuana plays into the 2020. Right. You have some candidates who are coming out saying, you know, full legalization, but also full exoneration. Right. That all pot charges should be wiped out um, and that, you know, such a a lot of the social justice and equity in this country stemmed from the war on drugs. Um, And it's been interesting to see how, you know, sitting around with your buddies and smoking a little grass and eating some pizza is becoming um, perhaps a forefront of the 2020 issue in a greater a greater part of the conversation for social justice change and um, justice reform in this country. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that angle, but that's that's wonderful to hear. I think if following the uh, the narco trade and war on drugs, I think legalization is definitely a step forward to um, not only uh, social justice in this country, but deaths and others um, where there's gang violence and and, and much more significant, so I'm all for it. Yeah, definitely um, a topic to dig into another time, not in our finish. Um, so thank you so much for listening, everyone. Hopefully you have um, a continued uh, lovely rest of your week, and we'll see you next time on Forwards, Backwards, and Upside Down. Happy Easter, everyone who celebrates. Happy Passover to everyone who celebrates, and um, have a wonderful week.